I would have worked a lot harder if I knew I was going to receive that elaborate introduction. Yeah, when Dr. Jeffrey Freimeyer asked me to speak, uh, I said, yeah, actually, I don't mind doing that until I saw what he titled it. Philosophy Chapel. This is the second time he's doing that again. I said, yikes! You want me to talk about philosophy again in chapel? So I'll just do what I think the Lord has asked me to do. Amen. And then see what happens. How's that? I'd like us to talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. As you all know, we've just come out of Christmas. And I kind of have this uh, nostalgia about leaving Christmas behind. I remember having to put the lights down and having to put the uh, decorations down in church. And I'm kind of hesitant to do that with my home. So the Christmas tree is still there, only that the lights are not on. The Christmas lights are still out there, but we don't turn them on because we just feel like every day ought to be Christmas. It is something that I enjoy. It is something that I always look forward to, except, of course, for the snow. But we don't have snow here, so that really works for me. But we have this thing called the incarnation. I think in many ways it has been obscured by the lure and the commercialism that comes with this season where you have a greater focus on Santa Claus, a greater focus on the toys, but you forget that in the incarnation, you are looking at something that is existentially inexplicable. It is profoundly miraculous and deeply theological. But not only does it come to us in this uh, manner, the manner we might call cerebral, but it has some practical implications for us. And so, for example, you look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 23, that says, The virgin shall be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's just one of those passages that speaks about the incarnation, which if you're not careful, you could easily pass over and keep going to see what's happening next. So let's just pause for a moment on that passage and think through the implications of that verse. It seems to say that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a confirmation, first of all, of his power for us. Secondly, it's a confirmation of his promise for us. And third, it's a confirmation of his presence among us. Let's begin with the first one. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a confirmation of his power for us. It says, the virgin shall be with child. Pause there for a moment. Virgin, child, those two don't really go together. If you're a virgin, at least in those days anyway, 
you could not be with child. And if you were with child in those days, you could not be a virgin. So how is this playing itself out? What the angel is saying is, only God's power can bring this about. Only God can make it possible for a virgin to be with child. Because God is the creator of nature. God is the creator of the laws of nature. And only he can have the power to put those laws in place and to suspend those laws if necessary. That's why a virgin is with child. Take it or leave it. God is in control. And he has his power for you and for me. Perhaps that's why the great pastor whom I leave unnamed said, anytime you see Jesus doing something in his life, it is powerful. So you come, for example, at the point where he turns the water into wine. And this theologian says, the conscious water saw its master and blushed. And then you come to see where Jesus calmed the storm. The theologian says, the conscious water heard his master and hushed. So you have the power of God at work for you and for me. The power of God right there in place. Are you waiting on God? Are you waiting for his power? Are you waiting for his manifestation in your life. Go no farther than the incarnation. If the virgin can be with child, what is your tiny little problem to him? <laughs> the incarnation is a confirmation of the power of God for us. Secondly, the incarnation is a confirmation not only of the power of God for us, but also of the promise of God. For us, it says, the virgin shall be with child, and she will give birth to a son. He is quoting, the angel is quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where you hear about the prediction or the prophesying of the arrival of the Messiah. And Joseph is standing there. Listening to all this, the angel is saying, that's exactly what's happening in your family. A promise is being fulfilled right before your very eyes. The plans of God are unfolding right before your very eyes. It is happening right there before you. So much so that you can always take God at his word to fulfill his promise. Because God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God is reliable. He never reneges on his promise. And so in your life, I don't know what promise of God you are waiting for God to fulfill for you. He may do it at a time you don't expect. Because, as they would say in the black tradition, black churches, God is never too early. God 
is never too late. God doesn't show up at the 11th hour. God shows up on time because the times are in his hands. And so the incarnation is something that assures you of the promise of God. What promise are you hoping God would fulfill for you in your life? What promise are you expecting to see being unfolded for you? Look no farther than the incarnation because the incarnation is a confirmation not only of God's power for you, but also of God's promise for you. But there's a third one that I think is very, very powerful, that the incarnation is a confirmation, not only of God's power or of God's promise, but also of God's presence. It says, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. God has promised to be with you. God has promised to be with us. Too many times we look for God's power. We look for God's promise. We forget his presence. We ask for God's gift. We forget about God, the giver of the gifts. The reason God promises us his power and his presence many times is so that we would be drawn to him and sit at his feet. When Jesus spoke about all these, he reminded us of the importance of being close to him. When God called Moses, he told Moses, I will lead the nation of Israel through the Red Sea. And when you have gone through all that, this will be a confirmation that you will come and worship me on this mountain. The presence of God is much, much more important than the gifts that we look for from God. He is saying the importance was not, were not the plagues that afflicted Pharaoh. Neither the importance was it, was, neither did the importance rest even on the parting of the Red Sea. The importance did not rest on the manna. The important rested on coming to sit at the foot of Christ, of God, to worship him. That's the idea. God with us. And so the angel comes and tells Gabriel all these things. And I'm wondering, suppose, suppose, just suppose, Jesus was born somewhere in this day and age, probably at Waterford Lakes, probably at Lake Eola, probably somewhere in these United States or somewhere in Africa. I am doubtful that if someone took a picture of him at that time, he would receive more than two shares on Facebook. I'm doubtful that it would get more than two or three tweets. I don't know that he would get any of those. This is because Jesus did not show up amongst the high and the mighty. He bypassed the palaces and showed up amongst those who had been neglected, the least, the last, and the lost. He made it possible for you and I to know 
that he came to identify with us. He denied the high and the mighty the privilege of seeing a king being born right before their eyes and gave that privilege to the poor, to the meek, to the least, to the lowly, to the last. Perhaps a poet might capture it in the following way. If he were to do it, if a poet came to the scene, it might not be theologically profound, but linguistically, it could be captivating. It, he would say something like this, that at the incarnation, that's the time when spirituality took on physicality. Divinity took on humanity. Deity became a denizen. Eternity took on temporality so that his meekness muted his majesty. His obedience obscured his omnipotence. His poverty pacified his power. And his tenderness tucked away his toughness so that he came now to you and me as royalty without a robe, as a king without a throne, as a prince without a palace, as a ruler without his throne, and even without his robe, even without his palace, even without his crown, and even without his robe. When he came, we see profound things happening, so much so that the angels applauded him. A star acknowledged him. The shepherds worshipped him. And the wise men served him. Because right before their eyes was a king lying on a manger for his throne. On a stable for his palace. Wrapped in swaddling clothes for his robe. That's how God reveals himself. Because comfort was not his livelihood. Sacrifice was his livelihood. Showmanship was not his mission. I tell you, salvation was his mission. Survival was not his goal. Death was his goal. And that's why I think the incarnation, the act of the incarnation, was the greatest story ever told, the greatest life ever lived, the greatest deed ever done, and the greatest gift ever given. The privilege that you and I have is to go out and tell the world that at the incarnation, when you hear about it, it's something more assuring than politics, more exciting than sports, and more captivating than the headline news. Yes. God bless you.